Oh, God, I knew this was going to happen. Okay. <clears throat> His name is Major Archibald Butts. Major Archibald Butts. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Major Archibald Butts rocks. He's a good dude who does noble good things. But <laughs> he's got a silly name, and so I'm going to try very hard to not descend into child Twitters every time I say it. But Archibald, Archibald Butts, come on. Anyway, Wait, Major Butts. You could Butt, just call name, him Major, Major Butts. Major Butts. <laughs> oh, Lord. History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to frankly, I want to know. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Hilf. History, I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. And Hilf is in the den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in the den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Now, this is the conclusion of the Hilfing of Titanic and a few things of note before we dive back in. As I record this, it is right now, June 24th, 2023. That's the same week as the release of my um, previous episode, Titanic Part 1. And the same week those five fellas tragically died in the tourist submarine from Ocean Gate. Girl, same week. <laughs> Crazy timing, right? And it's not usual for history nerds like me to find their shit trending. Okay, and it's why this episode is coming out a week earlier than scheduled, because the iron is hot, right? Who said there's anything wrong with coming early? <laughs> uh, I am rejoined by guest Ashley Richards, host of the hit true crime podcast, That's So Fucked Up, TSFU. And uh, we recorded our conversation weeks before the Ocean Gate incident. So, you know, you won't hear us mention it, obviously, but man, you will hear about another ill-fated tourist event at the wreck of the Titanic, okay, that took place in the 90s and involves a storm, Buzz Aldrin, and Burt Reynolds. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Before we jump back in, I do have a few questions for you. Okay. Let's pretend you're a passenger. We'll go ahead and put you right in the middle. You're second class passenger. You're not stuck down below in steerage. You were not wearing your pearls necessarily in a, in a lifeboat here. You get the news this ship is going to sink. How do you think you react? <sighs> um, well, yeah, no, I, I think I'd get real warm. And mm. get my ass to a lifeboat, you know, just in case. I'm not a gambling woman. Okay, Don? I see. I understand. You're getting in a lifeboat before they even get it over the davits. You, you're you sitting in the lifeboat with a bag <laughs> before they've even hooked it up to the winch. I'm like the people at Costco in the town that I live in today. Uh-huh. There's a new Costco that opened today. Big day. They're, they're lined up. Oh, yeah. I don't even think there's any sales or anything going on. No. It's just... I didn't know that I lived in that small of a town, but mm. uh, somebody posted on Facebook, this is what Costco looks like right now. And it was oh, like, geez. it was not open. There was a huge line. I was like, what are they lining up I like for? big quantities. <laughs> I think for me, I think if I was on the Titanic, I would behave 
entirely differently if I had my kid and if I was alone, I Mm-mm. think. Not I me. think that I think that if I was alone, I would be a little bit more like some of these first class cunts that were like, no, thank you. Oh, my God. I, I, you... I don't even know if I would know if the boat. I mean, I would get into it. Certainly once I truly once I had truly believed and like seen, no, this boat's going to sink. And if I don't get in the lifeboat, I'm going to die. Then I don't know. That's a humanity question. Then that's I probably do everything I can to get in the lifeboat. I don't think it's I too kill, late. Maybe right. it's too late, Don. But if I but if I have my kid, I'm forward thinking. Everybody needs to be as safe as possible. It turns out when it's just me for self preservation, my bar is significantly lower. And I'd be like, ah, if it's if we're not sure it's gonna sink yet, I'm gonna stay in here. And that's why I don't have kids, because if it's me or the kid, you know, they're going over. Oh, stop it. <laughs> not true you wouldn't even throw you wouldn't throw a rubber tree plant in the ocean oh i don't believe God. you you know who I, really i'll tell I you who know. really blows my mind the crew because i don't know i feel like i if it's me if i'm working on the titanic i'm fucking out of there and i'm not giving <laughs> a passenger a fucking thing i cannot believe how many crew members on the titanic were fucking working as it sank i don't know what i'm doing i don't know what i'm doing to save myself but i'm certainly not working anymore i am not answering to anybody i I quit you tell me i need you to not save yourself i need you to go get something no i'm no i'm totally with you i'm totally with you but something that i thought of um in the time since we recorded part one and it felt like 84 years, which I also kind of think makes Rose a bitch because she yeah. could have given that to her granddaughter or something. Yeah. And hello. Lots of granddaughters. Schools. We can build could... lots of schools with that diamond yeah, I mean, rose. Come, come on, Rose. That was a little I yeah. like that. Another kind of mind blowing little nugget I came I came across. That I want to run by you. This one blew my mind. It was proposed at some, you know, Titanic uh, fanatic symposium of some sort where they sit and discuss various, many various subjects about Titanic. And, uh, some dude like got everybody on their heels because he suggested that a lot more people could have been saved on the Titanic if they had simply used the lifeboats to ferry the people to the iceberg. And people on this panel, people on this panel who like know Titanic were like, uh, Oh, oh my! Could they? Oh have? my god! That, oh my god! And they just kept like stuttering and looking at each other, like "fuck, yeah, that would have been fucking brilliant." Because there was a what a lot of icebergs around, which were like islands made of ice. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I, people are gonna hang out on islands. Oh shit. <gasps> No, who oh knows? God, like, who knows how actually feasible it, it would have been? But yeah, all, all I know is that people who like know Titanic better than anyone on Earth knows Titanic were all sort of like, well, Jesus uh, um, Christ, buddy, fucking <laughs> <laughs> right. Look at the time. I gotta go. Yeah, and this and this really brings us to our first point. Why are there symposiums about Titanic? Why <laughs> are there convention? You know, why are you and I? One and two of many millions of people who just can't look away from this one and who find the smallest part 
of its history to be worthy of this close, close scrutiny. Because we talked about everything that made Titanic special in the first part. Her Mm -hmm. size, the extent of the luxury, the people who were on board. But honestly, it's worthwhile to take a minute to talk about what was not special about Titanic. What what doesn't warrant the amount of interest that you and I have in it today? Um, First of all, boats fucking sink all the motherfucking time. No one on Earth is really more than apparently 30 feet away from some sort of shipwreck. And that, I guess, is true because they're like under the earth and in dried lake beds. They're just like, look, boats been sinking for as long as they done <laughs> been floating, okay? And ti- so Titanic is certainly not unique simply because she's a shipwreck. And she isn't even unique. Like, more people have died in shipwrecks. Way more people have died on individual ships. But this isn't, like, the most number of people to have ever died. It doesn't even come close. It's not even, like, the most historically interesting ship. And, like, yeah, nobody cares. And, like the question, too, you ask questions of class and race and culture, like, would we care as much if it had been a, a, a ship full of miners going out to work a mine? Would we have cared as much if it had, uh, if everybody had died? Or does the fact that there are survivor accounts, you know? And then people were like, oh, it's so, it's so manufactured <clears throat> that people said at first it's tabloid driven, that the whole, this whole thing in Titanic is, has all been manufactured by the media in the 1912. I think it's fair to say, 111 years later, the amount of interest that we maintain about Titanic was, is not being generated by a tabloid. There's something sort of timeless and inherent about our interest, yeah. right? And so why, 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 why can, are we so uniquely attracted to this one. You know what? I think that part of it has a lot to do with the movie. I'll never let go. I promise. It's kept this perpetual pop cultural interest for generations. Totally. It, it asks a second question, which is the push me, pull you of our fiction and of our culture. Do we make movies about the things we're already interested in? Or do we find interest in only the things we make movies about? I think that you can find an argument for both of those things. But generally speaking, I'm going to be of the camp that we, our movies and our books, follow our already interest. You know, for example, yeah. like, because like, other things that have gotten us like this in history, we can kind of predict them. Like in the 1920s, when we first discovered the Egyptian tombs and mummies, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was fucking interesting then, and it's fucking interesting now because it's from yeah. a culture that was 3,000 years before Christ. And it's fucking, in- oh my God, right? Pompeii. I have an episode about Pompeii, this, the Italian city that was you know, completely covered by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and all the people. Oh, so, and I think Titanic fits into that, that, that pie chart in terms of big and the, and the more history the further away i think it gets from us the more interest we have but it also is unique because the interest started immediately that first book i told you about was published weeks later and that was by demand whoa what people were desperate to know what happened to the people aboard titanic the biggest most luxurious ship in the world <gasps> sink slowly over the course of two and a half hours tell us everything and this book was published because of demand. It wasn't the other way around. Oh, my God. When last we met, there were, give or take, 
700 survivors floating Mm -hmm. um, in uh, 17, I think 17 or 18 different lifeboats. Then there's that overturned collapsible, right? And they, Mm. Ashley, I cannot, one of the things that always gives me goosebumps and I'm, I'm feeling it right now is the feeling of a person in the lifeboat when the last part of the Titanic finally disappears beneath the water. Because that had to be among, because it's not just the like surreal feeling of something so unimaginably big suddenly being underneath you somewhere in the darkness, Mm. but the sounds uh, of the explosions and and the steam and the screaming and the breaking of the boat, like the the how loud it was to now suddenly silent. I feel like I'm in a scary movie. And that silence then suddenly pierced by just human screams. <gasps> oh, God. No. I really, as I've been researching this history Ooh. and I'm going around and around with all these sources, every time I get to that moment, not just... The, the kind of vague, the sinking of the Titanic, because the sinking of the Titanic took two and a half hours, as we know, and started mm-hmm. with like a very calm conversation over some very el- elaborate teacups about how bad it's about to get and ended with that. It's suddenly been erased. Like for someone sitting in a lifeboat, a boat bigger than the Great Pyramid, we talked about its size, the boat bigger than the Washington Monument, bigger than St. Peter's, has just slowly disappeared and was like erased by a pencil or something like, and your adrenaline and you're so cold. And now the screaming. Okay. Oh my God. (sighs) I feel like I would have been like Kathy Bates, Mm -hmm. but, but that's, she wasn't, she, she wasn't right. I mean, she was, you know, Mm. in the movie, she played the unsinkable Molly Brown and she was like, what it's wrong do you know if that's true i do Do actually it is it is and a lot of the depictions of margaret brown are very accurate to what the witnesses and the other people in the boat with her were thinking and and i'm sure every boat of course is very different because you've got they said that there were women who were had to be held back from jumping in whether to save their sons their husbands whoever they had left behind or just to die because this is the worst thing ever that it was right. it was you know and then there were some where no one could look everyone was just looking down because oh, they could oh my god and the people who did look one of the other things that both movies represent because there are seven everybody who survived saw it was that the electricity stayed on until almost that last moment when the stern disappeared because i told you earlier that one of the many amazing elements of the Titanic that made her so modern and so luxurious was that she had this incredible electric grid and that incredible system included this super powerful generator designed to keep all of the electricity on in case of an emergency and that generator was located in the stern which was the last part of the ship to sink so they could really see the windows that that image of those portholes going down with the light still on inside is exactly how it went and also why if you remember i told you about the ss californian that can see that they finally were like oh it's gone (laughs) it looks weird now it's gone that you know and then and then they still didn't fucking go over there because they were like they're gone they went they sailed on oh my god that 
Oh, no, they, they, the SS, That's what Cali- they thought? The SS Californian does not uh, get any of, of the survivors. In fact, as you said, and oh as the movie God. represents, there's that great moment where Rose is on her door and she sees just the words, the Carpathia, because that is the name of the ship. And if you recall from part one, they were, they got the message and our man, Captain Arthur Rostron aboard the Carpathia is like, let's fucking go. And they open up their engines and haul ass and it, they don't get to the first lifeboat until 5.30 in the morning. So to give you a timeline, the iceberg hits at 11.40. Mm. She sinks slowly at first, then faster as the aerodynamics, the bow goes down. She starts to pull the boat down. It goes a lot faster. Um, the entire ship is gone by about 2.30 in the morning. And the screaming... Mm of the people in the water probably stopped by three at the latest. No, I don't think anyone could have screamed for 30 minutes, but they were probably all dead within 30 minutes. And it was another two plus hours of just floating in the dark, in the silent, silent dark. And they said, and this is also, you asked about Molly Brown, when the sun started to come up, it was a fire I mean, it's not ambiguous when you go from darkness to light. You know, the fire, fire, orange brightness of the sun did many things, uh, illuminated many things. Among them, they were in a forest of icebergs. They look around and and they're bright, bright, blinding white, and they're kind of everywhere. And they didn't know they were there, you know, at night. You, obviously with no reflection they couldn't see him but it was this sort of like slow emergence of these like quiet giants that they said were sort of standing all around them our guy captain rostran on the carpathia is going slow 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 once he gets within range of the coordinates that they last got from jack phillips because a there's icebergs <laughs> right we've learned right. and two <laughs> you know you're looking for survivors so you got to go nice and slow he sort of comes around an iceberg and spots the first lifeboat at 5.30. They bring, you know, the, the lifeboats in over the course of kind of the next two and, a, two and a half hours, the last lifeboat that they find and is brought aboard about 9 a.m. And they do the head counts, about 705 people. They're in various states of health and hysterics. Um, and the passengers of the Carpathia, like, let's give a historical high five to the passengers of the Carpathia because they just fucking left New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? They left New York <laughs> to go to Hungary, Austria. They've got some rich people too, but they're not as big of a fucking deal. They got some poor people too. Nobody gives a fuck about them. You know what I mean? They're just <laughs> hanging out, <laughs> doing a kind of normal pedestrian transatlantic ship. All of a sudden, we got to go pick up these soggy fucks, and we got and they <laughs> and they give them all their clothes, and they give them their cabins, and obviously they food. And nobody ever talked about them again. And, and now we don't give them <laughs> enough credit, right? And they raised a ton of money. So, so two people in particular are a big deal here. And one of them is Molly Brown, who I'm going to talk more about later. And the other is the widow of John Jacob Astor, who was the richest guy in the whole fucking world. These Mm. two women in particular get money. They just start raising money. And they're like, this money needs to go to the survivors who were with us, who lost everything so that, you know, this is just what we can do. It's all we can do. Um, And -hmm. and apparently they did a very good job. So this sad sack of people 
they slowly realize there's no more survivors because they're thinking a lot of them on the Carpathia are like, how are the other rescue boats doing? And the Carpathia uh-huh. is like, uh, it'd be just us, you know, this is, this is it. And there's still just this kind of distant hope that like, maybe my husband and son got onto a founded door. Maybe my baby was, you know, all these things. And as they slowly realize it's every, everyone you see here, that's it. Mm. You guys are the only ones and there's 700 of you. So they <sighs> humble along. They arrive in New York city at the same dock they were supposed to go to. Um, one day later than they were supposed to arrive on April 18th and it's raining and it's dark and there's 40,000 people just staring at this Carpathia like, whoa, right? Now, some of them who are waiting for this- Wait, does everybody know in the world that the Titanic sank yet? Yes. Or like- Well, everyone's been alerted whether or not that information has gone. Every, all those 40,000 people know that the Titanic sank and the survivors are coming in on Carpathia. Yeah. That much information is gone. Now, are there families? Now, are there moms and dads and families out there in Missouri who are waiting for Johnny to come home who have no idea Mm -hmm. this has happened? Absolutely. There's going to be weeks and maybe even months for people at various periphery to the individuals on board who find out later. But the news is out. The Titanic struck the iceberg late in the night on April 14th, sank early in the morning on April 15th. And by April 18th, which is the day that they arrive in New York, word has spread. They've even gotten to the point where the the crew aboard the Carpathia had gotten an inventory of all of the survivors, right? You know the scene where Rose chooses to give a false name? Yeah. Um, this is what they did. Carpathia was writing down the names. And of course you don't have your fucking driver's license. Not that you have a thing anyway, but everyone's just giving their name and not everyone speaks English and there's going to be, you know, some confusion, but they had been able to give a somewhat complete list of the people they had aboard the Carpathia to the folks waiting on shore. So there were going to be some individuals who already knew my loved ones on the Carpathia and I'm waiting for them because I want to see them again. And there were some folks who were waiting to see if, their loved one was aboard the Carpathia or not. So this Ugh. is this is the the atmosphere. Now the White Star Line, eh, there's insurance, of course, on everything. And the White Star Line got paid out by their insurance within 30 days of the sinking. What? Now granted, it was a fraction of the cost of the thing. It was kind of give or take eight hundred thousand dollars that they got, but White Star was covered long before and of course they got sued they had huge lawsuits from individuals and from organizations and they ultimately take it all the way to the u.s supreme court and the to make a very long unfuckable story short because it also doesn't end with much of a surprise (laughs) you know the u.s supreme court deems it an act of god completely unforeseen nobody's fault soupy sorry bye get over it get over it (laughs) and then you know world war one starts (laughs) And and it's like, yeah, we all wish the world was fucking different. Get in line. (laughs) All right. So what I'm going to do now, my friend Ashley, is we're going to go through some notable victims, some, some, some people that I want to highlight that went down with the ship. Okay. We already talked about Captain Smith. We already talked about the architect, Mr. Andrews. And what we're not going to talk about, unfortunately, are the untold numbers of trapped immigrant men, women, and children who 
went down with the ship. Um, it was really like the movie. It really where was. They locked them down there. It was one of those things where the White Star Line tried to say that didn't happen, but it was so many witnesses were like they locked the doors, and and they were already freaked out. The, the, of course, because you're they're down below, so the water is right. coming up and is coming into these cabins quickly. And I think that they were originally told by the crew, you can't come out because you have to wait your turn. It's not your turn yet. Oh, my God. And once things started to get more desperate, poor people know, I don't think I'm getting a turn. <laughs> I don't think it's just not my turn yet. I don't think I'm getting a turn at all. And then probably something switched at various places where the crew that was holding them back started to feel like stopping them was more a sense of self-preservation than anything else. Mm-hmm. That, that there was this kind of wild horde that was about to sort of rush the decks and just devour everything, which they were. And that's which because is true. that's what people right. do when they're about to fucking die. No, and I think as like that just brings up a point that I was thinking about. It's like if they did turn the boats around, like there is a good chance that people would have, like you know, flipped them over, like mobbing oh, towards the boats. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's you can't really fault them for not going back to fill the boats. No, there's a lot of this stuff. I mean, the bottom line is there aren't always best case scenarios aboard a sinking ship. At some point, you just, this is what this is. And you can waste time wishing that it was different, or you can simply address the situation as it exists in front of you, you know? And yeah. Yeah. You want, I'm sorry, because there were, and and both movies show people sort of complaining to the crew I'm too cold. You're pushing me. Quit pushing me. And you're like, no. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. We are well beyond complaining about the weather and how you're being treated. That yeah, go fuck go yourself. Go fuck yourself, yeah. So these are some of our notable victims first. Um, the first one I want to tell you about is Benjamin Guggenheim. He is one of mm, these. I know that name. Oh, yeah, Guggenheim. We got Guggenheim shit all over the place. And part of the reason why is because his family is one of these founding financiers, you know, these rich cunts that buy everything and own everything and run everything and are the gilded you know, generation. Blue blood. Blue blood. Blue blood is precisely right. He, Benjamin Guggenheim, he is in his mid-40s. He is the fifth out of seven sons born to these gobsmackingly wealthy people from the mining industry. And get this, Ashley. Okay. You ready for the scoop? Oh, my God. Okay. So he is traveling on the Titanic with his French mistress, uh-oh, a singer named Antoine Aubert and her maid, and they both have all their servants, and they're going to be one of these people, you, you know, in these gorgeous rooms and sitting around these gorgeous tables and doing all the stuff that we love so much. They mm. are awakened in the middle of the night by the crew, not the iceberg. They sleep through the iceberg impact. And Guggenheim, once they get out of bed and realize it's bad, he gets dressed, and he gets his mistress and his mistress's maid into one of the lifeboats. And then when he realizes two things, one, the men aren't being allowed in and this ship's going to sink. He Mm -hmm. and his servant go back to his room, dress up in their finest clothes. He puts a rose in the buttonhole of his jacket and he goes down with the ship. Very calm, sipping brandy. I feel like that's, that's what I was talking about with that like, 
that dignified thing or how the the musicians kept playing to be like you know what like this is something that we love and fuck it like this is mm. what's up and we're we're not gonna be let onto the boats either and we're not gonna try because there's women and children mm-hmm. and i don't know i just don't think i see it going down like that today i think it's one of those things that you only will ever know how you'll behave <laughs> in the moment because i think what it is is inevitable death i don't i think that there's a thing with inevitable death when you really 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 are looking death in the eye Mm. and i imagine that it's something like when i when i recall historical instances of like old school executions by hanging i am sometimes brought to a real pause when i imagine standing on a gallows with the noose around your neck and your hands behind your back where you are not in pain you don't have any anesthesia. You may or may not be intoxicated. You know, you're just a person in sort of full mind and full health staring the inevitable death. It's going to happen right now. And just having those moments before it happens to just be aware. <laughs> you're not being devoured by a bear. Yeah. You know what I mean? This isn't a fight or flight situation. This is just like death's on its way and it's coming in five, four, three. And there's mm. something about being able to greet it with a certain amount of like life was good i'd rather not go out clawing a stranger's eyes out right i'd rather not go out pushing a baby into a railing (laughs) you know even if i thought that that (laughs) act might save my life i don't want to do that I just want to talk to this guy about how much I loved eating when I was alive <laughs> and how great brandy I mean, is, you know? I, I like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would be that that guy or that gal. I know. I, don't think, I mean, I think I'm screaming. <laughs> I think I'm holding on to the top of one of those funnels, just yeah. shrieking. <laughs> and why? <laughs> why? <laughs> My $92,000! <laughs> That's pretty, yeah, that's probably me. Oh, but, and you know what? So many eyewitnesses uh, have confirmed that this is how several of these fellows went down. So many people find it impossible to believe that they, simply because I could never, you know, they're thinking to themselves, I couldn't do that. Or they're thinking, surely these guys didn't. In any event, you know, nobody knows. Who knows? Um, but another one is this guy you've heard, I've heard, you've heard me talk about before already, John Jacob Astor. Part of the reason why I mentioned him so many times is because so did all the headlines because he was the richest man in America. You know what I mean? Mm. This is this is a big this is Elon Ugh. crashing on one of those space rockets. Uh. You know what I mean? Like whether you loved him or hate him, like this is gonna make all the headlines and we're gonna talk about him before we talk about the guy who got hit on the ground, you know? Right. So John Jacob asked all right, I told you the gossip, right? All right. He had a mistress. Oh. Well, no. he's not he's not just the richest guy. He's also a very interesting dude. His family made money on real estate, but he is a decorated veteran of the Spanish-American War. He also checked this out, girl. He wrote a science fiction novel about wow. the future. It was called A Journey to Other Worlds. It was printed in 1894 and it's about Saturn and Jupiter in the year 2000. Like he's kind of a cool dude. Like I probably would have wanted to have met John Jacob Astor. And here's his gossip. His his juice, right? 
he is going through, has just gone through this huge public divorce in 1909. <gasps> and he, he was married and he had a couple <sighs> kids and he went through a divorce. And then what's even more shocking than that is two years after his divorce, he is announced, he is getting remarried. <gasps> Stop Not it. Not only that, he is getting remarried to a girl who is 18 years old. He's 47. Oh my God. Her name is <gasps> Madeline Force. They have already been married, Ashley. So that is all the crazy. They were on their honeymoon in Egypt and Europe waiting for the gossip to die down and have just boarded the Titanic after finding out she's pregnant to head back to New York. Oh, my God. I remember them from the movie. It's totally true. Molly Brown was like, oh, and if you look over there, that's quite the scandal. Ain't nothing to it, is there, Jack? Remember, they love money, so just pretend like you own a gold mine and you're in the club. I love that little nugget from the 1997 movie because not only would Molly Brown have totally gossiped, she would have known that because she was with them on their honeymoon. She was traveling. <gasps> um, so that's crazy. And what apparently happened here is John Jacob Astor, same, kind of similar to Guggenheim, gets up, realizes shit's real, gets his 18-year-old pregnant bride into a lifeboat and asks, can I go with her? Because, you know, A, I'm John Jacob Astor, and also she's pregnant. And he <laughs> says she's in a delicate position. You know, can I go with her? And the, God bless him, a crew member on the Titanic said, no, no men. And, and John Jacob Astor went, okay. Wow. Why? do we talk so much about the Titanic? Like, why is this a thing that has this perennial interest? It's because of little tidbits like that. Mm -hmm. Because even if you don't really care about any other stuff, somebody goes, did you know that the richest, most powerful men in the entire world deferred to crew members on a sinking ship and did what they were told? Like, that's kind of nuts. Yeah. Um, another notable victim of the Titanic <laughs> Oh, God, I knew this was going to happen. Okay. <clears throat> his name is Major Archibald Butts. You knew Major, that I was going to laugh. His name is Major Archibald Butts. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Major Archibald Butts rocks. He's a good dude who does noble good things. But <laughs> he's got a silly name, and so I'm going to try very hard to not descend into child Twitters every time I say it. But Archibald, Archibald Butts? Come on. Anyway, Wait, Major Butts. You could Butt, just call him Major Butts. Major Butts. Oh, Lord. All right. So, <laughs> but he's, but, but despite his silly name, one must discuss Major Butts because Major Butts is awesome. So Major Butts, he's a high-ranking military aide to two presidents, girl, Theodore Roosevelt and William Taft. Whoa. He is also, you fill in the gaps to this however you like. He's a lifelong bachelor who lives with and is traveling with a man, a renowned painter named Francis Davis Millet. And when you asked Major Butts, what's the situation here? He would say, uh, I live with a man named Francis Davis Millet. That's all we know. <laughs> okay. Millet, the painter, is about 20 years older, married with kids, but lives and travels with Major Butts. So, of course, lots of people are like, they're obviously in a romantic relationship, and they very may well have been, but there is no evidence of that. And friendships between men are also very real. <laughs> Who knows? 
What we do know is know. that they, they both died aboard the Titanic and that many, many survivors, when interviewed, said it was Major Archibald Butts who not only put my ass in a lifeboat, wrapped a jacket around my shoulders, and gave me a little, you can do this, and then got out and would go back on the boat and, get to, and bring someone in the boat and set them down, make sure they were oh. okay. And I think that is wonderful. But I like you, and I cannot lie. <laughs> be more. Be more butts is the moral of the story. Um, without getting too much into it, just cause, but I can't move on because it's so awesome. Isidore Strauss, another notable. You remember the old couple that kiss and hold hands in bed? Oh. Th- those are real. That he no. is the, his name is Isidore. He was the owner of Macy's. His wife went down with him, chose not to get into a lifeboat, and he couldn't get her into a lifeboat. And, um, and they really I don't, did died they, did, we don't know if on they the laid bed. Down. We don't know if they hugged in bed, but we know that they both, <sighs> they, they both had very clearly resigned to they weren't going to separate and they were going to die on board together. So it's very reasonable. It's very historically appropriate to show them hugging in their bed. It would have been a calm I, place to go. I think that's what they did. Um, William Stead fascinating victim of the titanic he was a journalist and a spiritualist and he had written check this out a short story about a ship that sinks in the north atlantic and doesn't have enough lifeboats and at the end of his life he apparently was sitting very quietly and calmly all alone reading a book in the smoking room if you watch the 1958 movie, which I know you're going to, because I mentioned it so many times, you mm-hmm. will see a beautiful representation. There's like points where just various characters are kind of rushing around in a panic, and you see this sort of stoic, bearded man sitting alone, calmly reading several times. And that is a, what many people said Mr. William Stead was doing at the time. This motherfucker predicted the future. Kind of. Well, and he I wasn't think, the only one. I think when it came, he was like, yeah, saw this shit coming. China. I mean, there's a couple of eerie premonitions about Titanic. I'll, I'll get into those too. One of the one of the notable people, not just not a victim, wasn't aboard this ship at all, and it was kind of weird. Is J.P. Morgan? You of course know J.P. Morgan. It's still the name of one of the most powerful banks in the world. If you're a Hills yeah. uh, 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 aficionado, you will remember him from the history of Nikola Tesla. He funded some of Tesla's experiments. He's one of the richest guys in the world at the time, and he owns the majority of the company that owns the White Star Line. And he was gonna be on Titanic. It was you know maiden voyage. It's like a feather in the cap of the people who are on board. And he was gonna, but he didn't. He just chose not to. Yeah, lucky. Some people said conspiracy, but you're like, I don't think he threw the iceberg in their path. (laughs) (laughs) Suck on this one, Aster. (laughs) We're going to talk about some survivors now. Okay. All right. So those cunts all died and it was very sad. (laughs) Here are the ones who survived. This is one of my favorites. Her name is Dorothy Gibson. Ashley, she's 23-year-old actress and model. She's like a, a painter's model. Get this, she survives. She plays herself in a movie about the sinking of the Titanic, <gasps> wearing the, the same clothes she wore when the Titanic sank in a movie that was made months after the sinking. That feels like really intense exposure therapy that right. um, it's probably a little too soon. Right. 
two things of note about this. One, we talked about earlier, which is what comes first, our interest in things or the movies about things. This is one of those where you, they made a movie about the sinking of the Titanic a month after the Titanic sank because it was all anyone was talking about. Because if you make a Titanic movie, you're going to make a ton of fucking money. Everyone's going to come. And mm-hmm. then you say that one of the survivors is in it and she's wearing her clothes. It's going to be so, so authentic. Crazy, right? How bad do you want to see this movie? Well, like really bad. I'm guessing it doesn't right. exist. Though. Really bad. Totally. Every print of it was destroyed right. in a fire in 1914. They Every didn't keep a it. fucking backup print in a different yeah. location. They didn't even put it on like a floppy or anything. Oh my God. Okay. Guys. Um, we have been dancing around my next person for a while. We're going to get tits deep with our friend, Margaret Brown. Yay. The unsinkable. Molly Brown. I love her. She could be an episode all on her own. Maybe she will someday. Um, For this episode, suffice to say, she was born a poor kid in a cottage in rural Hannibal, Missouri. She marries a poor guy named J.J. Brown, and they are just poor, simple people living in dirt huts until he has huge success in the mining industry in Colorado and becomes a zillionaire. Okay. Whoa. But at this point in the story, they've divorced. And uh-huh. Molly's like single looking to mingle with like all this money and a foul mouth and she don't give a fuck, right? She got she got half of it. Sure. And she's also, she just went with the Astors on their honeymoon in Egypt because she's like one of the few other rich people in the world who are like, I don't fucking care. People think you're too young for them. Who gives a fuck what these fucks think? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Molly, Molly's who you want. And, uh, and she, by all accounts, once she gets into a lifeboat, was... A, an indemnable source of positivity and and survival instinct mm-hmm. in that vessel because there was, a, there was apparently the guy, and this is represented in the movie, the, the individual who was sort of steering the boat. I believe it was a crew member or a man of some sort. Was they call him in this book, the, the book that came out right away, they call him the pessimist because he was apparently, he was apparently just like, that's it, we're all dead. Once the boat goes down, we're all going to get sucked down with it. Jesus. Once the boat goes down, all the survivors, they're going to hog. They're going to they're gonna swamp the boats. And even if they don't, we're going to starve. We're going to freeze. We're all going to die out here. And Molly Brown was like, buddy. And at one point, and she kept saying, no, we're going to be fine. She encouraged the other women to row. She was like, rowing is good for us. It'll keep us warm. If we row, it'll help keep us alive. And at one point, the guy is just being such a fucking like, we're all going to die, that she says, I'm going to throw you over the side. She says, if you don't shut up, I'm going to knock you out and throw you over the side. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Which I absolutely love. Now, probably somebody who could have gotten thrown over the side is Joseph Ismay. I mentioned him. He is the chairman and managing director of the White Star Line. His father was the founder of the White Star Line. He has the curly mustache. He's the one in the movie who says, this ship cannot sink. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So he gets pulled up into the Carpathia with these survivors. And at first, nobody knows who he is. Like the Carpathia... You know what I mean? There's, but somebody does recognize him, and then one of the other survivors, of course, know who he is, and they're like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! Wow, why are you alive?" <laughs> right? And yeah. he apparently also was a little demanding, like, "I am so hungry! Somebody give me a, you know, give me a private cab, and I'm freezing and I'm hungry. <laughs> I need a biscuit and some tea immediately." Right. So he, when they pull into New York. This has only become more pronounced, right? Especially like widows 
and mothers who have lost their sons are not going to be real easy on this guy, right? Mm -hmm. Not only are you part of the entity that is responsible for this tragedy, but the only people who were responsible for this tragedy that have already been forgiven are dead. <laughs> so was right? he, was he like kind of the only dude who had a, yeah, a big responsibility and was like, Hey, what's up guys? I'm still pretty here. Much. Weird. Yeah. I know they pushed me into a pretty lifeboat. Much. There were other rich, powerful, well, well-connected men who survived. And there were a few, uh, one, uh, I don't remember the name of this individual, but there were men that it was shown later had dressed as women to sneak on board a lifeboat. <gasps> they were, of course, not exactly heralded as heroes. And there were some <laughs> men that just by the nature of being a man, they were like, why are you on this boat? And I, I think I may have mentioned in the first part that they had to be like, dude, they made me get on the boats because no one was getting in the boat. I was pushed onto a boat in the early part, you know. Or they, they picked me up out of the water, and then that was okay. Like for the collapsibles, the guys who like got on the collapsibles and stuff. But to your point, yes, Joseph Ismay is sort of conspicuously one of the only ones who had anything to do with the line and had any control over how this went, and he is very much alive and in actually very good health. He should when have had some fucking dignity. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I mean, come on. So not only is he technically in trouble, like when he gets to New York, there's a there's a senator, um, Senator Smith, and he's already been working hard uh, to against the railroad tycoons for like safety standards and how things mm. are going with the railroad. So he's kind of already well poised to be like, these ships are no different than a train in the sense that they're responsible for how the crew and the passengers and the environment around them are impacted by what they're doing. And he subpoenaed, Joseph Ismay, before he even got off the Carpathia, and ah. was like, you will come and answer for this. And it was a very, and the trials were very tricky and were highly publicized. And then he went back to the UK and he had to answer for stuff there. Um, there was a, a poem written in a newspaper in Chicago that I think sums it up really well. It says this, to hold your place in the ghastly face of death on the sea at night is a seaman's job, but to flee with the mob is an owner's noble right. Ooh. Oh. That's like an old school diss. It's nice, right? So yeah, Joseph Ismay, like, and there's accounts. He's sad. He wrote letters. He had to, he was sort of ashamed of himself, but he ate like a king and died an old man. So fuck him. Um, <laughs> but there were, but the the result of some of these trials and investigations were um, impactful. Uh, for example, specifically because of the sinking of the Titanic, the following rules were made and established for any future passenger ship on the high seas. One, someone has to be on the radio 24 hours a day. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Two, you can't shoot flares of any color for any reason other than distress. Three, there has to be room for everyone on a <laughs> lifeboat. Get out of here. Four, there are now, and we're right away, ice patrols specifically designated ships and technology that just keep an eye on them icebergs and let us know how to avoid them and things like safety drills for crew for passengers when you get on the ship we give you a real good overlay of what to do if all shit breaks loose right and no passenger ship has ever sunk as a result of striking an iceberg ever again so wow there well, you that, go that's good 
So that was uh, so that was good. So those are the benefits. Those are the benefits. So what we've done at this point, my friend, is we have caught up with our survivors. Mm-hmm. And we talked about some of the folks who died and some of the legislation that was changed after the fact. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to catch up with the dead. Ooh, I like the way that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Hey, creepy people. This is PNW Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 as well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have Have a a creepy-ass day! You know, when speaking about Titanic, I can't help but be grateful for those who keep me afloat. My patrons. (laughs) Let's hear it for the latest Craig C. and Joe, anything but Joseph L. They are both wise generous and we must all assume very good lovers (laughs) if you would like to join their hallowed ranks and help me buy books rubbers headlamps all the tools of the trade go to patreon.com slash hilf podcast and see what's cooking also find me on instagram at hilf podcast i post a photo and little history nugget every day from the most current episode but um you know you probably already know that because you follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. Oh. How are you feeling emotionally? <sighs> I'm feeling emotionally exhausted. So I can't believe how the real people felt. <laughs> right? And like, let's not forget, dude, it's so cold. Right. We have. Uh, brought the survivors now safely to shore. Some of them have a real fuck of a, a, a time of, ahead of them. You know Ooh. what I mean? But, but they're on land and their story is continuing on land. What we have left floating out there in the ocean, of course, are many, many of the bodies of the victims of the Titanic. Mm. Before the Carpathia had even gotten to New York... And the word had gotten out and was definitive that the Titanic had struck an iceberg and was, had completely sank. And that all of the survivors were on a boat heading to New York. They already started a, we have to go out and recover the dead or maybe even they thought some of the ship, you know, who knows. And the ship that was selected for this task is called the McKay Bennett. And it is sort of a uniquely qualified ship for this because it is a cable ship specifically meaning that its shape and its and its speed and its design is to drop and manage these giant cables that run down right through the Atlantic Ocean and are connecting the world for all of our it's communication crazy by the way what it is honestly a miracle and when you think about how little we knew 
at the time about what happened under the ocean that we were doing this at the time is right crazy but they have kind of this unique quality that makes them good to go out there and one of the things is they have a refrigeration compartment that can store ice which they're going to need for the preservation of uh. the bodies and they also had a cargo hold big enough to hold a hundred caskets and there was an added incentive which was that john jacob astor's father put out a $100,000 reward for anyone who could retrieve the body of his son. So on April 17th, the day before the Carpathia arrives in New York, the McKay-Bennett sets out. And they leave Nova Scotia, and it is windy, and it is cold, and there's tons of weather, and they ultimately arrive at the disaster site on the 20th. This is the first day that they start to see the bodies of the Titanic victims. Mm -hmm. I was really moved by the fact that the captain of the McKay Bennett ordered everybody to keep a diary. Interesting. They get to the first body on the 20th, and it's not too far from where they thought it would be based on the coordinates they gave when they struck the iceberg and where they found the survivors. They kind of did the math <laughs> and were like, the bodies mm -hmm. probably drifted to about this place. And that is where they are. Um, they row skiffs, you know, small boats out from the large ship to collect as many bodies as they can. And on the first trip out, they load 51 corpses into the skiff and they take it back to the McKay Bennett. And they do this as often as they can for as many as they can hold in the skiff and then as many as they can hold in the boat, which is more, they find more bodies than they have room for. Oh, no. Ultimately, they recover aboard the McKay Bennett 306 of the 328 bodies that were found. So to do the math for you, um, about 1,517 people perished on the Titanic. Mm -hmm. If we found 328 bodies, that means that there's just over a thousand people went down with the wreckage. Interesting. That's a lot. That's a lot. So that must have <clears throat> that must have been a lot of the. Uh, it's about half. Third class. A lot of them are third class passengers. Yeah. Um, so th these 306 bodies they bring on board, 116 of them are buried at sea either because they were they could not be identified at all, they wouldn't have been able to have anything that could sort of tell the family what this looked like, or they knew they were third-class passengers, and that's all they know. They had to sort of differentiate who they treated with what care. Anyone they could identify was a first-class passenger, was embalmed and put into a casket in ice. A second or third-class passenger would be wrapped in canvas, and put on ice. And then these 116, only 56 of whom were identified. They actually could identify 56 of them. They just, they, they wrap them and weighted them and buried them at sea. So the McKay Bennett then sails back to Nova Scotia with 190 bodies on board. Oh, in the uh -huh. coffins. Well, or wrapped in canvas, yeah. And they get okay. They didn't throw the coffins over. No, when they buried people at sea. at sea, it would be just sort of a wrapping of the body and a tied to a weight, and they drop you over the side. Right. Yes. Yeah. Nice. 
poor people. Yay. Yay. Yeah, no, it turns out. And there's all sorts of, you know, you can look at that through all sorts of lenses, right? How, you know, I guess you can take it with you. (laughs) You know what I mean? But there's so many reasons why they did it the way they did it. If they could identify a first class passenger with a ton of money and they could embalm that body and bring it back, that person's family is probably going to pay them what it costs to do it. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're also, these fucks have things like estates and wills and heirs. And it actually, in that way, matters more that you can confirm that they're dead because all these other gears go into place. Whereas, yeah, you got some guy who's just a father of 19 kids from some cornfield in Missouri. (laughs) They know he's dead. He's dead. They can't come. They can't come and visit his remains anyway. They're not going to pay for any of this stuff. If we do it and bill them, what kind of honor was that? So they just (laughs) sort of, you know, it's not great. I don't know. But what's fair? What, What about this whole fucking thing? has ever been fair and what about the rich people being treated better in death as they were in life is surprising to anybody yeah they arrive in halifax on april 30th they begin unloading their cargo i mean you know how i said you can go tits deep in any aspect of this history if you really want to if you like the dark stuff and i know you do ashley Oh, you know I do. Um, you can dig into the history of the embalmers the, the team of embalmers that were awaiting the McKay Bennett at the Mayflower Curling Club Ice Rink in Halifax. Positive sounding yeah. name. Because apparently one of the big challenges, oh, this is, this, is a bit, this is a bit dark. One of the biggest challenges for the teams recovering the bodies was that they were almost to a person, of course, sort of spread their arms were out, right? Because they're floating with their arms up or they have the life jackets on, so their arms are kind of straight out to the side. And they're frozen. Mm -hmm. Their bodies are frozen like ice so that they had to first break almost every arm and leg just to be able to get the bodies into the boat. You're right. I did like that. that. (laughs) They did find John Jacob Astor. They could identify him right away because he had a watch with his name on it and his clothes all had his name on it. So he was easy to spot. They find the band leader, Wallace Hartley. And he was found with his music case strapped to his body. I don't know why, but the band is just... <laughs> I, def- I totally cried with that I'm part. I'm telling you, when you think... <laughs> I think that when people talk about the Titanic, it feels to me, just in my sort of informal research on the thing, right, is that people know it's a, it hit an iceberg and sank. And they know the band played as the ship went down. It feels like... Most people hold on to those two things. Even before the really, movie. Really? It's not just no, me? No, even before the movie. Oh. I feel like the band played on is a turn of phrase because of the Titanic. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why I just find that so moving. Because it's, it's wild. Well, I think music is moving for one, and then for them to just be like, you know what, at least if everybody's going to die, there could be just something nice about it. Yeah. And music is nice. <sighs> yeah, I mean, if that doesn't make you guys well up a little bit, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't well, know here, you know what? And if that doesn't, I have one for you. If, you, if you're not <laughs> crying yet, here's oh, here's to me one of the most remarkable victims recovered by the McKay Bennett. Are you ready? Yeah. He is an 18-month-old boy. 
No. That for decades was known only as the unknown child. And I want to... Now, you already knew, we all knew, that children died in the sinking of the Titanic. Um, But this particular child has kind of a lovely story because the death, of course, is tragic. Every death of the Titanic was tragic. But for the McKay-Bennett, when they found this boy, they were devastated. (laughs) He was the fourth body that they pulled out of the water. And they were all very, very moved by him. And they all cared (sighs) for him very, very much. And they placed a copper pendant um, on him. And they collectively, the crew of the McKay-Bennett, was given a huge bonus for this job. And they all pooled their money to pay for the funeral of this boy because nobody identified him and nobody claimed him. And they named him Our Babe. (laughs) I'm going to cry. I can't believe it. Oh, you're crying. No, you're crying. So they put a copper. Baby's dying doesn't doesn't, doesn't get me as much. So they they put a (laughs) copper pendant in his coffin and they called him Our Babe and they carved Our Babe on his tombstone. He was identified by oh. DNA in 2002. <gasps> um, he was a third-class toddler named Sidney Leslie Goodwin, and his parents and his five siblings also went down with the ship. Mm. Really sad. Well, and you know, <laughs> it's it's one of the things. It was it was very interesting listening <sighs> to James Cameron. If you watch the uh, special that I've linked in the show notes about James Cameron recreating Rose and Jack on the door, (laughs) among other things, (laughs) Um, he talks about always coming back and trying to remember the victims. Uh, Right. And he has on one of the walls of his shop, uh, sort of almost like the Vietnam War Memorial, just a big wall with all their names carved into it really small. Because I think that you can do that. You can get so excited about something and think something is so salacious and so silly and you can start to have fun and you should because it's history right. and it's crazy, but it is really hard to float around with this story for long without being punched in the heart and just I, feeling the pain of this story. I think James Cameron at least portrayed that without being so fucking gnarly of just having some baby by itself just like floating dead where he had which was um just as heartbreaking but there was a scene or there's a part of the scene where they're going through the dead frozen people where it's a mother holding her yeah her infant son and you're just like yeah, and you know the nineteen Fuck. the 1958 movie girl that it doesn't pull any punches with that either. There's a scene where a man kind of swims up to one of the lifeboats and hands a swaddled baby up to the people waiting, you know, in the boat and he kind of after he hands the baby kind of drifts back into the water and they hold the baby and look and very sad and slow lower the baby back into the water too. Oh, oh. <sighs> I, oh. you know i mean fuck. jesus don i didn't see that coming <laughs> oh, listen it's uh and this was something every 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 part of this story is is has shades of both survival and crazy odds and just devastation so you and i have talked about the lives and the bodies 
and and the survivors and some of the fortunes that were tied up in this in this ship when she sank. Now I want to talk about the ship herself, because she of course okay. is one of the victims. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. You're probably gonna answer our question. Oh no, go ahead. I ask. live for questions. Go ahead. So they they put out coordinates where they were, where they where they were, mm-hmm. and then. I th- I'm sure you're going to tell me, but then they like couldn't find the Titanic for a long time. For sure. For right? sure. It's crazy. Well, and the, ti- the first of all, the coordinates that they gave weren't great because we're okay. still not talking about computer digital, like, you know, and so these people are in the state of mind that they're in giving coordinates. So there, there was apparently some error because when they get to the coordinates they gave, they're like, it's, they're not here. So there's the some ocean's pretty of, big as well. Ocean's very big. We yeah. do at, in 1912, we do know currents and flow. So we can kind of predict, like we kind of knew where to find the survivors and stuff like that. So we're kind of good at it, but we're not great at it yet. Mm-hmm. Combined with the fact, and it's very, very difficult for the human mind to truly comprehend the depth and the vastness of the oceans, right? Especially in this particular place. It's, we can barely conceptualize how big the ship was. So, of course, it's difficult for us to then further conceptualize a place so big that the Titanic can be can disappear, can be a needle in a haystack. Right. So this Mm -hmm. is always always going to be very troubling. But keep in mind that when the ship went down, several things we didn't know for decades that we now do, which is that she's broken half. It was a huge point of contention that nobody knew for sure if she broke in half. Now, the survivors in the lifeboats were like, we heard a big fat crunch. And then it went like, gigunk, like it broke in half. And definitely the, the stern bobbed around, right? Right. But the White Star Line, <laughs> based on nothing, <laughs> you know what I mean? None of them like, were there. No. We're like, it, no, it did not. It could not have done that because of how good we built it. And like everyone was said, like, it's right, unsinkable. Right. <laughs> so, so people who were looking for Titanic, people that were trying to find the wreck, were generally looking for one big ship. And okay. even so, knowing that she sank fr- from the bow first, you know, going down, there's, uh-huh. a, there's a velocity and an acceleration that happens that mimics a bit of like what it would be if you were going across the water because you're sinking, you're still traveling a certain distance and how far she's traveling. That would sort of be something like how she would have traveled on the surface. You know what I mean? Is a drastically different mathematical equation based on the angle she's Mm. sinking. And also based on math, we are decades from learning, which is pressure. We don't know how much pounds for per square inch impact a falling object a mile below the ocean. We can't even calculate that shit. If we even knew how deep it was, we don't even know where the bottom is, right. let alone what, I mean, it was a lost as a thing can be lost. I think that's Girl. another reason that it has for so long stayed in people's mind because for such a long time it was a mystery of like well where the fuck is it like when a plane disappears today it Mm -hmm. totally catches our attention also though unlike the titanic we forget about it like a month later we do we do but (laughs) if 10 people survived and then had a story to tell us about how it all went down we'd probably perk up our ears you know uh yeah true um But really, I mean, the Titanic being down there, the bottom line is what it really took was 
two world wars and a whole new kind of interest in what happens under the water for us to get anywhere close to being technologically able to find her again. That doesn't mm. mean, though, that the interest was not immediate. The Guggenheims, the Astors, right, among many, many others, want to recover the, you know, because the Guggenheim body was never recovered. And it's not just that there's a lot of wealth down there. The steel of the ship itself is worth a lot of money. Plus, we've got oh. old Billy Zane's diamonds, or at least the projected right. diamonds. That, of course, is a <laughs> fiction, but it's based on reality. All these cunts had their diamonds with them. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Some of them wore them onto the lifeboats, but most of them didn't. And they all had these. There's paintings down there. And there's also the mail, whatever was in the mail. And then let's not forget, dude, the value of a regular old hairbrush that happens to be a hairbrush recovered from the Titanic. Totally. Right? So stuff that was of no value is now of value simply because it sank with the Titanic. So the commercial possibility of finding the Titanic was an immediate interest. Uh And one of the first, like, desires to go get her was right away in 1914, a guy named Charles Smith. And he's using 1914 (laughs) knowledge, and he's like, electromagnets, balloons, (laughs) right? We got to get down there, then we got to get it. Then we got to get it up and they can't. With it's, balloons. It, with balloons. And you can't. And, and by the way, a lot of other people thought about balloons, but none of the balloon <laughs> ideas are going to work because what we learned is that the pressure underwater is so great that you can't actually inflate a balloon. You need so much like force to inflate a balloon with the, with six, ultimately where the Titanic is now, there's 6,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. I don't so even. That's like math yeah it's sitting it's just heavy it's it's, uh it's breathing with a a elephant sitting on your chest no thank you right it's just pounds per square inch you just got something sitting on it's too much can't inflate a balloon like that um so that doesn't work one of my favorite dudes though who is all up in the titanic skirt is this very colorful guy named douglas woolley he Basically, in the 1960s, 1970s, he's just this guy who just, like anybody else, gets obsessed with the Titanic. He thinks about the Titanic all the time. He decides he owns it. He does. He basically does the equivalent of like, you know how they say if you write a, a novel or something and you print it out and you put it in an envelope and you mail it to yourself, that that is like a copyright it's like you could take that to court somewhere and say, I can prove I wrote this book before anyone else said they wrote this book because I have this like post stamp, like the something about the post office and the way it works. He basically oh. did the equivalent of that <laughs> with the Titanic. He's like, nobody owns it because it was built in Ireland and it left the UK, but it's owned by an American company and it's in international waters and he kind He's of like, was like, nobody really owns it. And so he was like, I'm going to say I own it. And, I, and he basically like, and they, the bank was like, well, I get like, well, you could, I guess if you like tell the world, you think you own it. If you think you own it, let me know. And so we like put an ad in a newspaper that was like, I think I own the Titanic and I do. So everyone knows now that's in print. I've said it and it, nobody <laughs> could dispute it because I said, it was, it's literally, like, and then he came up with all these crazy ass ideas to raise it. And he'd get money, and he would get people. It hasn't been found yet, by the way. He hasn't. Nobody knows where it is yet, and he is getting money from people because he thinks he knows how he can raise it up again, how he can bring it back. And that he, it's so bizarre. He's such an interesting guy. If you want to know more, read this book, Sinkable. 
by Daniel Stone. I think Stone. it's classic it's so maritime law. Finders keepers. Sure. Yeah, dude. Well, it's not, I mean, that's kind of the deal. It's sort of the deal <laughs> with treasure hunting. And this guy, oh, here's another colorful dude comes up. Jack Grimm. Okay, this is the early 1980s. It's a great he, name. Totally great name. He's a Texas oil man, and he's into all sorts of crazy shit you would love. He's into finding Noah's Ark, Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot. He likes all this stuff. <laughs> yes. He had the good sense to have Orson Welles narrate a documentary that he was making on finding the Titanic. I mean, he's all over. The, he's got a gazillion dollars. He's mega, mega, mega rich. And one of the things he does with his mega, mega, mega rich money is he donates to universities and science institutes and foundations. And then because he has given them all this money, he sort of is like, and now you are going to use your technology and all of your things to help me find this kooky shit I'm after. Right. Right? And he does pretty well. Like he does generate ways to like make kind of dope maps of the ocean floor and finding what's around there and what to look for. However, It is Robert Ballard in 1985 who has the privilege of being the guy who got to be standing on a ship when the camera brings up the image that says, we found her. And you've never, I've never fucking heard of that guy. You know what's crazy (laughs) about Robert Ballard? (laughs) I agree. I and I forgot his name. Honestly, he's one of the few things in my notes I had to highlight in red because I knew I always have to look for his name to be like the guy who found it is that 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 da Robert uh, Ballard. Who was there that? he is. And it was a two. To be fair, it was a team. He was on a with a, on a French a team with a French guy named Jean Louis Michel. And there's some drama there, girl. Get you to the unsinkable a Titanic podcast hosted by La Beatles. She has a great episode that's all about the like. These two found it and they were at first they were like arms around each other and all of their press releases were like, we found the Titanic. And then very soon after that, it's like, you fuck. <laughs> because there's not enough credit given to like each. It was very exciting. But Oh, and like probably they hadn't talked about a prenup ahead of time. It's like, correct. What if what if we don't like each other anymore and we have all this shared wealth? It's complicated. Also, Robert Ballard was already kind of a controversial figure among us nerds um, because he did, you know, a lot of lowbrow stuff like Gasp, the History Channel and National Geographic. And he was sort of seen in the like elite um, intellectual, historical and nautical circles to be kind of a low low brow guy kind of a pop culture guy and he wasn't given a lot of seriousness so there were a lot of um a lot of hats being eaten when old robert ballard found the titanic by professors and other professionals who were like he's a hack and he'll never achieve anything you know what i mean uh so yeah i've never been weirdly a part of any nautical or historical or intellectual yeah it's an interesting any of (laughs) any of my listeners I think would be surprised to hear that. Be like, really, Ashley? <laughs> <laughs> Not going to a say. lot of symposiums, are you? <laughs> oh, um, so our boy Robert Ballard finds her, and where is she? She is essentially two thousand feet under the water, just about two miles down. Oh. She's in two pieces, just like them cunts said. She broke in fucking half, and they can see by the debris field. 
If you go down there right now, the bow is sitting upright. You can see the bow. You can see just like in the movie. All of that stuff is exactly what she looks. That's actual underwater, you know, footage. Um, and there's luggage and there's shoes and there's sinks. The chandeliers are hanging in some Wait, of the rooms. That's real footage in yes. the movie? James Cameron went down in a submersible. That's all real underwater footage taken from the actual wreck. Um, the staircase, part of the staircase is still there, but not the, the main floor part. They believe actually the pressure was so great during the sinking that it was crushed and shot out of a skylight. Um, Whoa. But there are, despite that, a lot of it is so eerily intact and it's very cool. There's a lot of these rusticles, they call them, that are increasing and she's deteriorating. They thought for a while because of how dark and how cold and all the pressure that she'd like be preserved forever. But they now we've found her and we see how it's progressing. We see she's disintegrating fairly And quickly. we're not bringing her up? Well. We're leaving her down there. So remember how I told you our buddy Douglas Woolley was like, I own the Titanic basically <laughs> because yeah, I printed um, a... that's mine. I put it in a classified and nobody wrote me back. So take that. Okay. I called it. Mm -hmm. Well, who owns the Titanic? It's a big question. At the moment, we have what's called RMS Titanic Inc. It is a corporation, of course, uh, run by G. Michael Harris, George H. Tulloch. Nobody cares. Rich fucking guys. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Rich fucking guys. And they, they're basically, honestly, your modern Guggenheim and Astor. And I doubt very much that this is missed by them as they huff their cigars and tap their gold rings on things while they talk, you know, <laughs> jerk, jerking off to all this wealth. Um, <laughs> but uh, through donations and through funding and through court orders and all these things, they, they established themselves as the, quote, salvor in possession of the ship, whatever that means. Um, but they do all the dives down there. Um, here's a real sick thing that RMS Titanic Inc., did in 1996. This is, of course, before the movie. Mm -hmm. These cunts advertise that they're going to go out to the wreck and they're going to bring up a huge piece. Um, specifically, uh, this is going to be a part of the outside wall. It's got portholes in it. It's got some windows intact. Uh, it's a 15 by 25 foot piece. It weighs about 20 tons. And if you want to watch us bring up this giant piece of the Titanic, well, you can do that. And guess what? Cost you $5,000 a piece and we'll bring you out on a gasp. <gasps> luxury passenger ship. Fuck that. It's a Vegas style luxury accommodation. There's going to be Vegas-style gambling celebrities, Burt Reynolds, Debbie Reynolds, Buzz Aldrin. And we're going to, and every room, Shut no, it. get this, this is cool. We're going to have every room has a TV in it so you can like close caption from inside your luxury deluxe cabin watch as we hoist this giant piece of the sunken Titanic. Girl, it is a huge disaster. Nobody dies, but there's like rough weather. The ropes that are holding this giant piece snap in this big dramatic falling out and the piece tumble it was 200 feet from the surface and it breaks and it falls all the way back down and gets lodged in the sludge next to the wreck and everyone's pissed the historians the archaeologists the marine biologists are all just fucking oh. pissed off and her majesty 
the RMS Titanic Inc. doesn't give a fuck. They try again and they do get it. And if you want to go see it, you can. Because guess where the largest collection of Titanic artifacts brought up from the wreck by RMS Titanic Inc. are located? New York. The Luxor in Las Vegas, Nevada. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul. If you want to go see a permanent exhibit with all sorts of artifacts, including that big fucking piece of the wall, you got to go to the middle of the desert, which I find, you said gross, I actually find it, honestly, perfect. Because, Why? Because Las Vegas is Titanic. It's the a, it's desert, a drowning, girl. soulless. It's a, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't have any business out there in the desert. And if you turned off the power, it would sink into the sand. It would take a little bit more than two and a half hours. But that entire city and all the beautiful, expensive spectacle and all of the richest people in the world who come there would be sunburned specks of dust as soon as you've turned the power off. Wait, did a real cruise liner go out to the wreckage site? Did that happen? Yes. That happened. 1996. Okay. Dude, if you got on that ship thinking that that wasn't a fucking cursed-ass cruise that y'all were all going to die on, you are out of your mind. Because obviously that didn't happen, but I would have been like, But you got to know that as soon as it was like, uh, as soon as you're out there, and you probably didn't miss that. I I doubt anybody got all the way out there without a little flicker of like, this is a terrible idea. So let's just, you know what I mean? So let's just know that you probably have that somewhere in your heart. That even if you're like, you know, Burt Reynolds just snorted coke off your ass and you're actually like, no, this is great. And then all of a sudden you hear somebody go, oh no, there's a problem. You'd be like, I fucking knew it. You know? Wouldn't that be a hilarious prank? Girl, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> Buzz Aldrin was apparently on this fucking ship. Can you imagine if Buzz Aldrin walked on the fucking moon and then drowns? I don't know if I trust that, Don, but that's for another day. Well, we can, we'll cover that one next time. I got my Area 51 episode. You can go find out. But here's a question. Here's, and this is a question for you because it's obviously been answered by the good people of RMS Titanic Inc. But the question that is asked of them a lot and that people debate is, should we leave her alone or should we bring up these artifacts? Is Leave it grave robbing? Is it great? Is it grave robbing to take these people's stuff and put it on display? Is it is it any different than any other artifact from any other place? I mean, you you tell me a great historical moment where someone didn't die. Like, how do we ju- how do we draw a line between this and a civil war? You know, field a soldiers, uh, whatever pieces of nine eleven. Uh, where do we draw the line between historical artifact and sacred human? memorial yeah no uh, i think we have enough historical artifacts i haven't been to the luxor but it sounds like they got a big chunk and some probably some brushes and stuff leave it alone you can also buy like i want a tea set that was exactly like the one uh that they drank from yeah yeah Yeah. just leave the ones that were there though you say leave it there because it's because guess what the ocean i mean the ocean's doing its own thing like all of that is going to be devoured by the ocean 
probably within our lifetimes, actually. I've heard some pretty doom and gloom uh, evaluations okay, of how they're... So it, it's not like, shall it uh -huh. be preserved forever but out of our reach, or shall we desecrate it? Some people are saying that we need, out of respect for the site, to do what we can to preserve it. Oh, it's a debate you can get into, girl. You know what I was thinking? I was looking at a map, man. Geographically, the Luxor is like right between me and you. And you're like, road trip? Road trip? Oh, my God. Maybe. Right? And be like, this yeah. is sick. And we just walk around and be like, this is awful. This is terrible. <laughs> I, can't want, I can't wait to see more. That's disgusting. How dare you? What else do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I mean, I told you when we first set sail on this voyage that, that the first Ooh. hardest part is where to start this story. And the second hardest part is where to end. And uh, I'm going to end right here. Are you ready? This yeah. It's just a, a nice little button. Drop it. Just nice like little, it's hot. Nice little button on it. There is a ton of paranormal history <gasps> around the title. Stop it. And as bitch. my friend Ashley is a cult leader and Did you just saw me get all giddy? Yeah, she's deeply <laughs> entrenched in the dark spooky of the darkest Love spooky it. places. I thought as a tribute to you, I would end with something spooky. Oh, oh my god, thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited. Oh, okay. my God. Stop it. Okay. Ready? Yes. In 1898, that is about 14 years before the Titanic sank. Okay. A novel called Futility was written. A piece of science fiction uh, written by an author named Morgan Robertson. And in this novel, Futility, uh, is a story of a ship called the Titan. She's over 800 feet long, the longest, no. biggest ship ever made. She hits an iceberg in April in the North Atlantic and doesn't have enough lifeboats for everyone aboard. What? Okay. And it's yeah. determined in the course of this novel that the ship probably could have survived if it had hit the iceberg straight on. But in a crazy act, it turns hard to starboard and is slashed down the side. Stop. And sinks. And if you look right now at the cover of the novel Futility, you can see how eerily similar. No. The Titan, the Titanic, 800 feet long. Versus 880 feet long. It is. Was he alive eerie. when it sunk? Okay, so here's the good news. He was alive and he was probably like, what? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because they republished the book. And they actually do change a couple things about the book just to help them add even more. But they don't change it that much. And of course, people then and now are like, that's too fucking weird. No, that is insane. Mm. I'd be like, I think I made that happen. I think I made that. <laughs> and some people are like, premonition, premonition. And other people are like, well, he knew the shipping industry. You actually didn't. If you were tits deep in the shipping industry, you didn't have to be that clairvoyant to be like, that's about the size. That's a problem they'd probably run into. You know, but still. Well, it's, it's still, it's pretty. Still. Turned, made a hard left, you know. It's right. Like, ah. It's pretty great. My dear friend Ashley, wow, you done. and I have... You fucked that hard. We fucked it hard. I took, <laughs> I took all 889 feet of that bitch. 
and I'll and do it again. And then you gave it, and then you gave it to me. Ugh. Good. I want to say thank you for not only for bringing and being being the first bold enough to recommend such a rock star uh, from the annals of history, and oh. then to be such a wonderful guest, and let me just heave hot history oh. all over you. Also, my friends, if you just can't get enough of me and Ashley, the good news is that I, in turn, am her guest. I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but whenever it is, you should go henceforth immediately to That's So Fucked Up Presents Ashley's, one of Ashley's many podcast uh, endeavors, Uh, and she fucks the history of Jonestown. And I oh, get to yeah. be in the unique position of a fucky. I, I sit back, relax, and you fuck the history. And I say things like, what was his wife like? And, well, who was there? And then sometimes and you like, go, don't ask me questions. I don't do the research <laughs> like you do. <laughs> and you go, don't ask me questions anymore, Don, because I don't always know. I'm like, okay, listen, bitch. I didn't read four books, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, sister, uh, I'm going to have you in my ear holes very soon, but I won't be able to say when I'm listening to you talk next time. Thanks. That was fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to Ashley Richards. Go hear more from her on That So Fucked Up or TSFU The Podcast. She's so good and so fucked up. (laughs) You'll love it. As for Hilf, you got that episode a week early. You're welcome. But now you've got to hang out a minute. All right, I'm taking a short summer vilf. (laughs) My kiddo is about to start kindergarten, and and we're going to go gobble up all those last few weekends of sandcastles camping and state fair. You get it. (laughs) So no new episodes the month of July. But don't you fret. In August, we're getting into bed with Coco Chanel, Anne Boleyn, Monica Lewinsky, and so much more. (laughs) Until then, our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us, hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. If you'd like to become a patron of the pod, <laughs> go to patreon.com slash hilfpodcast and see what we can do for each other. This has been Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming.